0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Some people are born to lead. You can keep your General Pattons, your Napoleons, Genghis Khans, and Hannibals, because they can't hold a candle to Jan Zizka. He was such a mighty and effective commander— leading peasant farmers against numerically superior professional troops that he wanted to continue leading them after his death. Also, he was blind. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlaz, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off US versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous US China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. First, a little background. It's all to do with the 14th century Czech Reformation, which is not nearly as well known as the Protestant Reformation a century later, though it was almost quite as impactful. One reason it's less well-known is that most of the original and secondary sources were only published in Czech. The Czech Reformation produced the first national church separate from Roman authority and the first pacifist Protestant church, the first radical apocalyptic religious movement of the early modern period. One prominent figure was a priest named Jan Hus, who broke with Catholic tradition by allowing regular people to drink the wine during Holy Communion as opposed to only the priests being allowed to drink it. In the year 1414, the Holy Roman Emperor Sigismund summoned Hus to a council to end the split in the Church, but it was a trick. Hus was convicted of heresy and burned at the stake. Four years later, the Hussites started on the road to a full-scale revolt against the Catholic Church by storming the town hall in Prague to liberate imprisoned Hussites. They meant to keep it low-key but someone inside the town hall threw a stone at them that flipped the switch and led to the first defenestration of prague where the hussites stormed the building and threw at least seven people out of a second story window the first defenestration of prague thus called because there would be a second one is widely accepted as the event that kick-started 20 years of hussite wars luckily for the hussites they chose Jan Ziska to lead them when the Pope called for a crusade against them. Ziska began his military career as a mercenary, fighting for whoever could pay. It was during that time, at the Battle of Grunwald in 1410, that Ziska lost one of his eyes. Not just damaged, removed right from his head. Normal humans would crawl to the sidelines, but Ziska was still instrumental in victory that day. The Hussites were outnumbered and outmatched by the German army. The Hussites were farmers without training or proper weapons, while the Germans were one of the largest and most disciplined military forces of the time. The Czech or Bohemian forces included old people, women, and even children. Ziska taught them how to fight with what they had, how to use their grain flails, a long stick with a short stick tied to the end that they used to thresh wheat, and now used as a weapon. Ziska used the terrain of the battlefield better than any other field marshal of his day, and would go on to design new military hardware as well as tactics. When King Sigismund invaded, Zizka led his farmer soldiers to a defensive position on a hill outside the city then called Vítkov. From the hill, the peasant forces were able to repel the crusaders, ending the German siege of Prague. It took a year of constant fighting, but Zizka was eventually able to push the Germans out of Bohemia. Sigismund would reinvade later, and his forces managed to encircle Ziska and his men. In a daring maneuver, Ziska broke through the enemy lines and returned with an army of reinforcements to cause huge losses to the Germans. Sigismund lost most of his men, and those who remained were put to death when angry Czechs stormed their last stronghold. Ziska led his farmer soldiers on an incredible winning streak, despite being constantly outnumbered and outgunned. He created a system of signal flags to tell the wagons that made up their defensive perimeter where and when to move apart, to let their, until that moment, hidden reinforcements charge through. Ziska created an armored division nearly five centuries before the first tanks would roll across Europe. He had wagons plated with armor from which cannons could be fired, crossbows shot, or just rocks thrown. The first battle with the armored wagons saw 500 Hussites roundly trounce 2,000 German soldiers. Between battles, the wagons could be used to carry forges to repair equipment. The Hussites would eventually roll wagons loaded with gunpowder into enemy lines to literally blow holes in the tightly packed German columns. Over the course of these campaigns, Zizka began to lose the sight in his remaining eye, until he was left completely blind. At that point, he had to give up leading charges and manage the battles from camp. I'm just kidding. He rode at the front of the troops, in the vanguard, as always, for four more years. At the Battle of Nemiki Broad in 1422, for example, Ziska's army of 12,000 thwarted an ambush attempt and destroyed... 23,000 Crusaders. The Crusaders failed to ambush an army led by a blind man. Jan Ziska died in 1424, not by sword or cannonball, but from the plague. His troops felt as if they had lost not just a commander, but a father, and began to refer to themselves as the orphans. Ziska hadn't left them completely, though. He asked his trusted lieutenants to remove the skin from his body after he died, And have it made into a drum so he could still lead his people into battle. At least, that's how some people tell it. Speaking of retelling stories, thanks for commenting, liking, or boosting the signal on social media this week to Nelson, Eric Parfait, Self Hero of Tennessee, Richard Enriquez, Bunny Trails Pod, Augie Peterson, The Story Behind Podcast, Naptime Nancy, Lie Hard With a Vengeance, Ronnie, Ben, Lindsay, James, The Presidency's Podcast, Historical Hotties, who also bestowed upon me the compliment that I sound like a cross between NPR's Terry Gross and Netta Ulibi, don't mind that, as well as Epic Film Guys, Dan Lefebvre, and the Women's National Book Association. If you want to hang out with cool people like that who like learning things, you can check out the Brainiac Break Room, our Facebook group at facebook.com groups, plural, slash Brainiac Break Room. That's where I post whatever cool facts I come across in the course of the week that don't fit with that week's theme, because those go on the main social media feeds. And of course, if you find an interesting fact, stick it in there. Now, a couple of your fellow Brainiacs are from jolly old England, a nation whose no-flag-no-country history is the aggravating factor behind more than a few underdog rebellion stories. Of the 200 or so countries in the world, only 22 have never been invaded or otherwise interfered with by Great Britain. Take New Zealand, for example. It was settled by Polynesian people who would become the Maori in the 13th century, and though the Dutch discovered the island in 1642... Europeans didn't revisit New Zealand until 1769, when British explorer James Cook mapped almost the entire coastline. Once the Maori were able to get their hands on modern weapons, 40 years of musket wars began, ending with the Treaty of Waitangi in 1840, which made them a British colony. The Maori population would drop by 40% in that century, while the British population was bolstered by new immigrants. The fight wasn't out of the maori yet though the taranga campaign was a six-month-long armed conflict in new zealand's bay of plenty in early 1864 as the maori continued to fight for land ownership and self-sovereignty 1700 british troops led by sir duncan cameron landed at the northern end of te papa which looked to the maori like an invasion force maori leaders met to agree on a code of conduct Geneva Convention-style rules governing the forthcoming battle. They sent these rules to the British, who promptly ignored them. The Maori selected a site on the Pukahinahina Ridge, where they designed and built a radical new fighting pa. A pa is a hill fort, a defensive position carved out of and built up from the national elevation, as well as a way to test whether or not I'm popping peas on my mic. This one was called Gate Pa, because there was a gate somewhere nearby, apparently I couldn't find a good explanation. The years of the Musket Wars had led to major change in traditional paw design, to one of protection against the new military technologies they were faced with, such as artillery and rockets, which was good because Cameron's men had a 110-pound Armstrong gun, two 40-pounders, and two six-pound Armstrong guns, plus plenty of smaller artillery. Picture a hillside with three trenches dug into it, one above the other, mostly covered by shelters of branches except for a small firing slit. The trenches were not dug in a straight line, but rather a zigzag. This would stunt the explosive and percussive force of any rounds that landed in the trench, rather than letting that force blow down the straight trench to get as many men as were there. The zigzag was also disorienting to invading troops moving through the trench. There were only about 230 Maori fighters, compared to nearly 2,000 British soldiers, so the British felt confident in a fast, easy victory. One division was sent around the Pa to cut off the Maori's escape route and resupply line. At first light on April 29, 1864, an intense barrage began, the heaviest artillery bombardment in the New Zealand Wars at 30 tons. Those 30 tons only managed to kill about 15 Maori, because the flagpole that the British were targeting was not inside the PAW, but well behind it. They even managed to hit some of their own troops. At 4 p.m., after nine hours, and with a breach in the palisade having been made, Cameron gave the order to attack. British soldiers stormed the trench four abreast, only to find the pa empty. For five minutes, there was nothing. Silence. Captain G.R. Greaves, who was with the leading party, left the pa to report to Cameron that the fort had been captured. Or so he thought. A volley of shots blasted the British, taking out several officers. The Maori had been hiding in bunkers inside the hill. Having been oppressed by British soldiers for so long, they knew what officers looked like to target them. Ten officers were killed along with 21 soldiers, and 80 more were wounded. The Maori were armed with shotguns, which would have been rubbish in an open field, but were superior in close quarters. The Brits fled the pa. Reliable details of the battle are thin on the ground. One account holds that the regiment sent to the rear charged the Pa, but were mistaken by the Brits as the front of reinforcements for the Maori. It's just as likely the British troops were so taken off guard that it became every man for himself. That night, out of ammunition and without supplies to withstand a long siege, the Maori quietly abandoned the Pa, passing through the lines of the regiment behind them and fleeing across the surrounding swamps before dispersing. They took their wounded and what British muskets they could grab, and disappeared into the night. Honoring the code of conduct, the wounded British soldiers were not mistreated or robbed, but instead given water before the Maori left. Two days after the battle, the British approached the Pa again, finding it deserted, for real this time. The dead and wounded were carried from the battlefield. There was a great outcry from the public, both in New Zealand and England, that a force of 1,700 British soldiers and sailors could have been defeated by about 200 Maori. You'll have to imagine I had a very clever segue right here, because I just couldn't think of one. I'd like to thank Maria for leaving a recommendation for your Brain on Facts on Facebook, saying, I started listening to this podcast on Pandora, and I'm addicted. She also let me know that when you look on the education category on podcasts on Pandora, at least when she did, I was number three. The only two things ahead of me were TED Talks. That ain't nothing, y'all. For anyone who has interacted with the Facebook page, I'm not getting updates on my phone correctly again, so please forgive me if I haven't responded to you in a timely manner. I would also like to thank Star Sharon, who left us a five-star review on Apple Podcast, saying, This podcast is full of interesting facts. The facts are a mixture of everything known about the episode's subject. I've always been a person that would just sit and read the encyclopedia or read every article and research paper on every subject I can. I'm endlessly searching for knowledge. This podcast feeds my desire to know about everything. I like that the host doesn't talk down to listeners or dumb down her vocabulary. And her voice is a pleasure to listen to. Thank you particularly for this, Star Sharon. My vocabulary, my natural flowery way of speaking, my belief that why use three syllables when you could use 18, that's just how I talk. And I have had people fuss me out no end my entire life. One of my retail jobs, all of my co-workers got together and complained to my manager about it, saying I was trying to talk over everyone's heads and make them feel dumb, which I've never, ever done in my life. This is just how I talk. And to have people who appreciate that, that quirk about you, means the world. One more quick thing before we move on. I want to extend thanks and welcome to our two newest members at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts, Patricia and James, who recently got to listen to the monthly bonus mini episode, Medieval Table Manners, and Nose Blowing, and The Polite Ways of Breaking Wind. Patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts is also the only place to hear the podcast Spot the Lie, where myself and three other podcast hosts basically play two truths and a lie and see who is the most clever and devious amongst us. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history? If so, Join me, Katie Charlewood, history harlot, and reader of books on Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Part of the Area of Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir, my friends. Bye bye. I'll be seeing you. A lot happens every day. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked the movie 300, you should appreciate the story of the Sikh soldiers at the Battle of Saragarhi at least 14 times as much. Like the Spartans at Thermopylae, this underdog story doesn't have a happy ending. In September 1897, 21 soldiers of the 36th Sikh Regiment fought an army of over 10,000 Afghan troops, killing more than 600 of them before they were overrun. The northwest frontier of undivided India, which is now a part of Pakistan, was a difficult bit of business, both terrestrially and politically. This is where the forts of Gulistan and Lockhart were built. There was no visual contact between the two forts, so a post was built near the village of Saragarhi to pass messages between them by means of signaling lights and Morse code. The region had been, and is, home to bloody conflicts and battle-hardened tribes. The Afridi, Araxai, and Pashtun tribes didn't appreciate Britain annexing the area and launched repeated attacks on the forts, On September 12th, the frustrated tribesmen changed their strategy. Rather than attack the forts directly, they decided to cut off communication between them by attacking the signal post, whose two mud-brick walls had only one officer, Havildar Ishar Singh, and 20 soldiers to defend it. The men of Saragarhi could see the tribes on the horizon that morning. The signalmen asked Fort Lockhart how many there were. Over 14 standards, they flashed back. That means over 10,000. The ratio of Afghan soldiers to Sikh soldiers was 476 to 1. Can you send help? the signalman asked. No, came the reply. Reinforcements from Fort Lockhart wouldn't arrive in time, and they couldn't risk leaving the fort unguarded. There was time for the Sikh to flee before the tribes arrived, but the soldiers decided to fight. To a man, they agreed to delay the enemy as long as possible so the forts could call in their own reinforcements. Twenty men gathered weapons and ammunition, while the signal man kept the forts abreast of what was happening. The Sikhs were experienced marksmen, but twenty guns can only kill so many men out of ten thousand. The Afghanis crashed against the outer wall like a wave. The first Sikh was shot dead as the Afghans began to scale the wall. The Sikh managed to melee through their enemies who'd made it in, but not without more casualties. The gunfire outside the wall subsided and shouts could be heard. The Afghan tribal leaders shouted offers to the Sikh, not only of safe passage, but of wealth and positions in their army, if they would give up the signal post. The Sikhs resumed firing at the Afghans. Then the air was filled with smoke. The tribesmen had set fire to the dry brush around the post, creating an acrid smoke screen. Fort Lockhart signaled that a detachment of Afghans was going around the side of the post, and the outer wall was breached. The Sikh now had to split their defenses between the main gate and that breach. Each man killed dozens of Afghanis, but soon there were only a handful of Sikh left. They needed to fall back behind the inner wall, but doing so would give the enemy the chance to force their way in. Commander Singh ordered his men inside, and charged the enemy, armed with sword and pistol. His fight was valiant, but brief, though it did buy his men the time they needed to get through the inner wall. No one was operating under the delusion of hope that he was going to make it out alive. Their goal was to delay the enemy and reduce their numbers as much as possible before being killed. The inner gate fell quickly. The signalman who'd been relaying constant updates to Fort Lockhart asked permission to leave his post to fight. He was the last Sikh alive. He killed as many as 20 Afghans before being overtaken. Colonel Houghton at Fort Lockhart said that he could hear the signalman shouting the Sikh battle cry, so nihil sat sri akal! shout aloud in ecstasy, True is the Great Timeless One. When the smoke cleared, the Sikh were dead. But they had held 10,000 Afghan soldiers at bay for almost three hours, long enough for reinforcements to reach Fort Lockhart. After the battle, Colonel Houghton related to the top ranks of the British Indian Army what he had seen through his telescope and what the signal man had sent. As a result, the 21 soldiers who died that day were awarded the Indian Order of Merit Class Three Award. It was the first time in history that each and every member of one unit had won such an award in a single battle. Today, the 12th of September is celebrated as Saragari Day to honor the sacrifices made by those 21 brave soldiers, observed not only in India, but in Britain as well. When most people think of World War I, They picture the barbed wire and trenches of the Western Front, of Flanders Field and Normandy. But much of the heaviest fighting was done on the Eastern Front between Russia and Germany. Russia was a major threat to Germany's ambitions, putting the Soviets squarely in the Reich's reticle. One obstacle in Germany's way in specific was Osowisk Fortress, located in modern-day Poland, which not only stopped Germany from advancing past it, but forced them to keep soldiers in the area instead of sending their troops to other fronts where they were needed. The fortress was highly defensible for its 500 soldiers, with two lines of trenches and barbed wire around its tall walls from which the Russians could fire down on their enemies. If the attackers made it inside, they would have to fight in deadly close-quarters combat. That's no mean feat. To put a Bristol spin on it, Russians are well hard. They handily repelled the first attack of over 10,000 German soldiers in September of 1914. The following February, Germany attacked again with numerically superior forces. It took five days of heavy fighting just to force the Russians back behind the first defensive line. Never let it be said that Germany wasn't persistent. The second line of defense fell in only two days. Heavy artillery was brought in to pound the fort. For an entire week, 360 shells would hit the fort every four minutes. About a quarter million shells from the siege cannons, and over a million shells from lighter artillery. Many of the inner buildings had collapsed, and the Russians took heavy casualties, but the fort held. It would be another five months before the Germans tried again. They brought fewer men this time, but they had sappers and a secret weapon. Chlorine gas which the Russians' gas masks were not designed to handle. Chlorine gas is particularly nasty as it targets soft tissues like eyes, the esophagus, and the lungs. Once it mixes with the water in the tissues, it forms hydrochloric acid that eats away at the flesh. There's no treatment for it other than to flush the chlorine out and try to treat the acid burns. There's a reason that most of the world agreed to stop using it at that convention in Geneva. And it did give rise to a sort of modern old wives' tale. If your grandmother ever caught you making a silly face and said, if the wind changes, your face will stick that way, that comes from the gas attacks on the trenches of World War I. Because chlorine was heavier than air, and a shift in the wind would pour it into the trenches. The Germans waited until the wind was favorable, then launched 30 canisters of chlorine gas at the fort a greenish-yellow cloud quickly spread through the area, turning the trees yellow and the grass black. The Russians outside of the fort died quickly. Those inside the fort watched, but could do nothing for their comrades, or themselves, as the gas seeped in. The Germans donned their better gas masks and stormed the fortress and its remaining 100 badly wounded soldiers. The Germans made it into the inner fortifications to meet a gruesome sight, Dozens of Russians, with bloody rags wrapped around their chemical-burned faces, coughing blood and even lung tissue, were charging the attackers. Some of the invading troops fired, but many, panicked by the terrifying spectacle and the Russians' refusal to die, retreated from the fort. Some were so startled they dropped their rifles and machine guns, leaving them behind as they fled. Some retreating Germans even got tangled in their own barbed wire. The Russians fired on the fleeing Germans with rifles and artillery. That counterattack allowed time for two more Russian companies to move up and retake the fort before the Germans could regroup. Almost all of the soldiers in and around the fort during the gas attack would die from their wounds, but their deaths were not in vain. Ocewick Fortress held just long enough to protect retreating Russian forces in the area and hamper Germany's plans. The newspaper called what happened there that day the attack of the dead men and that's where we run out of ideas at least for today i'll leave you with one last example but one where the larger force started as the underdog queen bodica of the iceni after being thoroughly and righteously p.o'd by the romans she organized the various tribes of britain celts and did more damage to rome than they could ever have expected It all came to an end, though, when her force of between 100 and 200,000 faced a mere 10,000 Roman soldiers. Unfortunately for the Britons, tactics and discipline go a long way, even when you're outnumbered at least 10 to 1. General Suetonius chose a narrow valley that would squash Bodica's troops even more than it was squashing his. A few volleys of javelins from the heavily armored Roman soldiers and the Britons descended into chaos, their own wagons blocking their retreat. Suetonius sent in his cavalry, and that was it for the Iceni, ensuring Roman control of Britain for centuries to come. Remember, you can always find the full script and links to the research sources at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me.